The next section is the birth announcement of Jesus, which is chapters 1, 26 through 56. So Luke first shows the continuity between John and Jesus by paralleling the birth announcements. Then he shows how Jesus appeared to John. Whereas John would go before Yahweh in the spirit and the power of Elijah, Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever as the Davidic king. So John is the one who goes before Yahweh to prepare the way for the king, where Jesus is the king that reigns over the house of David and Jacob, showing his superiority to John. So there are many similarities between the stories of John and Jesus' birth announcements, yet at the same time, God is making it very clear that Christ is superior. And you can see these similarities in the chart on page 14. The differences between the two birth announcements are that Elizabeth has a need for a child, but Mary has no need because she's a young girl that is not married. Mary's virginity is not seen as an obstacle because there's nothing preventing her womb from having a child. The real need is that of Israel for its Messiah. Jesus' conception is a result of the activity of the Spirit of Yahweh, and the angel comes to Zechariah at the temple where... He comes to Mary in an insignificant town. The other difference is that the angel of Yahweh comes to Zechariah, a very prestigious Levite, in the temple of God, where the angel comes to Mary, a young girl of the age of 14, 15 years old, in an insignificant town of Nazareth, because as you will hear later, does anything good come out of Nazareth? Zechariah responds in disbelief, but Mary embraces Yahweh's plan. Jesus is born from a virgin birth versus John's birth out of barrenness. John is great before the Lord, while Jesus is simply great. So John is great before the Lord, as in his position before the Lord is great. But Jesus is the great one, the most significant, the greatest. His position before the Lord is unqualified. There is no qualification put on how great Jesus is. He simply is. Jesus is seen as superior to John, for John is called the prophet of the Most High, while Jesus is the Son of the Most High. And John will prepare the way for the Lord and give knowledge of salvation, while Jesus is said to be the Savior. So these things emphasize the superiority of Jesus, despite the many similarities between their stories. Verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So the first thing we're told is that the angel is sent to Nazareth, a very small, insignificant backwater town, and is sent to a virgin who's engaged to a man. Joseph. Now, in the in this culture, engagement is the same thing as being married, basically. Engagement is that you pretty much have courted each other, the family has arranged for you to be together, and you're pretty much locked in because you have taken those steps towards marriage. The community has approved of it. They're pushing you that way. And to end the engagement and not actually take the official vows of the covenant would be very close to our concept of divorce. Because even though they haven't really said I do yet, and they haven't really consummated the marriage yet, they are moving that direction. And it's pretty much locked in on a like 
train railroad kind of path. And undoing that would disrupt the community just tremendously, and it would be like having a divorce. And so they are married. They are married. And it also emphasizes multiple times that she's a virgin. And what this points out is, one, they have been faithful to God and not making themselves sexually impure before marriage, but it also emphasizes the impossibility of her becoming pregnant since she has not been with a man. Therefore, the supernatural, miraculous nature of the birth of Jesus in Mary and emphasizing that the father is Yahweh rather than Joseph. And so this is all being emphasized here. It also means that there's going to be great scandal around her becoming pregnant because it's going to become clear that it wasn't Joseph's child because you really weren't ever allowed to be alone with your fiancé without the family being around. You were not alone until the marriage night. And every time you were with each other and courting or dating, whatever you want to call it, you were with the community constantly. And so it would be very easy to prove that Joseph had not had sex with her in order to impregnate her. Therefore, it would have had to been somebody else. So this is going to create much scandal around her that giving birth to the Messiah by the divine will of God is going to bring a lot of scandal into her life and into the life of Joseph as well, as everybody will constantly look at them for the rest of their life as, yeah, we know what you did. And we know who Jesus is, the illegitimate child of somebody else. So this is all being emphasized for multiple reasons. But we're also told that Joseph is in the line of David. So he is of the royal line of David. So he has the right to be king. It doesn't mean he's the only option for kingship because there are multiple people in the line of David because he's had multiple kids and they've had multiple kids. But it means that he does have a claim to the throne if kingship were ever really truly established in a legitimate God-ordained kind of a way in Israel. And so this then makes Jesus legitimately the descendant of David in the royal line and therefore legitimately allowed to be the king who is coming. And so he is going to be born to the Davidic line, the kingly line, as it is announced that he is going to be the king of Israel. Verse 28, The angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, unlike Zechariah, the angel specifically emphasizes the fact that she is favored by God. Now, this doesn't mean that Zechariah wasn't favored by God, but it is specifically emphasized that she is. Now, in the Bible, to be favored by God does not mean that he's playing favorites and likes you better than other people. It doesn't mean that you're somehow better than everybody else in your skill or intelligence or worth. But to be favored means that she is a woman of faith and she has lived a life of faith and obedience to God that has allowed God to look down on her with favor, with, with pleasure. And so we already know that she's a godly woman at this sense, in the same way that Zechariah was said to be righteous and blameless and follow the commandments of God. So verse 29, But she was greatly troubled by his words. So put the reading of verse 29 with the reading of verse 28. But she was greatly troubled by his words and began to wonder what the meaning of the greeting was. So where Zechariah immediately responds to the appearance of the angel by falling down in fear, and he seems to be more troubled by how in the world can God pull off a 
a pregnancy of a barren woman, it is not said that Mary falls down in fear, that that's her first response, although she is filled with fear because the angel will literally say, do not be afraid. But she's more troubled by the fact of why would she of all people be, be chosen by God? Why would she, as an insignificant 15-year-old girl in a town of Nazareth, God choose her and look on her with favor? This is what troubles she. She is more shocked by the fact that she has been chosen by God than by the fact that the angel has appeared to her. Verse 30, So the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Listen, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. So he announced the birth of Jesus to her and says, You are to call him Jesus. Notice that in both of these birth announcements, God is controlling the name of what the child will be called. And Jesus is, comes from the Hebrew word Joshua, or the Hebrew name Joshua, and it means Yahweh saves. So where John means that Yahweh is gracious, he is going to pour out his grace on Israel, starting with the family of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Jesus is Yahweh's saves. That he is going to save the nation of Israel from their sins and from their oppression. He will be great, period, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. So notice in this birth announcement, the thing that God is focusing on is kingship. This is the emphasis. God does not appear and say, Behold, you're going to have a child who will take away the sins of the world, and he will suffer, and he will heal people, and he will die on the cross. The emphasis is not on a salvation, death, and resurrection, a suffering servant sense. The emphasis is on kingship, power, military strength, ruling over Israel. So the first prophecy of Jesus ever, we talked about this already, is Genesis 49, where God basically says to Judah that you will produce a child who will carry the scepter and the ruler's staff, and he will rule over Israel and bring a kingdom of joy and life and peace and hope and joy abundantly. And then Numbers 24, the second prophecy of Jesus, Balaam, prophesies, Behold, a, a star is rising up out of Jacob, and he will crush the skulls of his enemies. And it is these two prophecies that all the prophets are going to build on and emphasize kingship and military conquests over enemies and bringing peace to the kingdom of Israel more than the suffering servant passages. They're both there. They're both significant. They're both just as important. But the kingship one is emphasized the most because only Jesus as the king over Israel, the son of God king, who has the military power to defeat the enemies of the world, can actually defeat sin, the devil, death, and the grave. And so the beginning of the Gospel of Luke starts with his kingship and military might, which then leads to his death on the cross and his resurrection because he is conquering sin, death, and the devil and spiritual warfare. And the emphasis is if he can conquer these things that are far greater than any military army or nation, then that all those military armies and the enemies of the God, 
God's people are easy, insignificant compared to what he's already defeated and conquered. Even as we think of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, we must be thinking about that in the context of that he is the king over life and all of creation, and that he is the all-powerful God who is conquering through conquests, death, sin, and devil. And this is how the gospel, this is the good news that is being announced. The good news is that your king has arrived and he will reign over Jacob. And this is what we are to emphasize, kingship. And we've lost the emphasis as American Christians. It doesn't mean that every Christian has, but as a whole, the American church has lost the emphasis on the lordship and the kingship and the absolute total submission and reverence for Jesus as our king. He's becoming too much, Jesus my friend, Jesus buddy, buddy, um, Jesus is my companion, and he died and saved for me, and now I can be free, and, all, and I can have a relationship with Christ, and all that's important. But obedience and submission and bowing down to Jesus is the foundation where we start in our relationship with God. We are told that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And Jesus, in chapter 14 of John, says, You are my friend if you obey me. The only time we're ever called the friend of Christ the friend of Jesus, is if we obey him. And that is submission, kingship, obedience. And this is where the gospel good news begins. Your king that you have awaited for has arrived. The king that you are to obey and follow. And his kingdom will never end. Now this doesn't specifically mean that his kingdom is eternal because he's going to live forever and therefore reign forever because he is God, an eternal being that does not die, like we would think of it, nor would Mary ever pick up on this or the original readers until after the resurrection of Christ. This is emphasizing the fact that he is the long-awaited king who will bring the kingdom of God and he will rule over the kingdom of God forever because the kingdom of God has come. And everybody who's in the kingdom of God will live forever in the kingdom of God. This is the long-awaited redemption of humanity, the kingdom of God coming down to earth, where there is no more sin or death or evil. All people are going to live forever in this kingdom. Now, in hindsight of the death and resurrection, we do know that he is God, but this is not the emphasis or the main point that is being made here. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I have not been intimate with a man? And the angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Mary questions how this will work. But for her, it's not a doubt. She's not questioning whether God is capable of making a barren woman pregnant like Zechariah did. Zechariah should know that's totally possible because of all the stories of barren women becoming pregnant through the power of God in the First Testament. His expression was doubt that God can make this happen. She is not expressing doubt that God can make this happen. She's expressing a confusion of how it will work. What are the mechanics of it? The fact that she will become pregnant without ever being with a man 
is never been heard of in all of history. And though all things are impossible with God, this is still nothing he's ever done before. He doesn't usually violate the natural laws in order to make things happen. He usually speeds them up somehow or circumvents them, but not violate them completely. And so she's asking how this will work. And that's why the angel doesn't respond in judgment or rebuke in any kind of a way, because it's not an expression of doubt or lack of faith, but a please help me understand this better. Be the same thing if God once you says, hey, I want you to go over here and do this. And then you say, well, how do you want me to do that? How is that going to work? Rather than I don't think you can actually pull that off or I'm not going to do it. So there's a big difference here where it's a more how will this work rather than I don't believe that it can happen. And the angel's response is, the Spirit of God will make this happen. It will not be done through the works in the flesh of men, but it will be done through the work and the power of the Spirit of God. And this is emphasized that the Spirit is involved here in two phrases that parallel each other. is that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The fact that this is repeated synonymously is emphasizing that the Spirit is the sole work of Mary's conception that will bear birth to Jesus. And this is very significant because that means at the very beginning of Jesus' inception, the Holy Spirit is working in it and developing him and creating him as a human. All of us are born into sin. And all of us are born absent of the Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 6. And it is only by faith, embracing Jesus our Messiah, that we then get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he begins to make us into a new creature, begins to sanctify us and regenerate us. But what God is saying is from the very beginning of Jesus' inception, he's going to be this new creature. He's going to be this unique thing. What it's saying is that Jesus is going to be unique, unlike anything else in all of creation. And this is emphasized by the fact that it says he's going to be holy. And we talked about this when we were in the book of Leviticus, but the word holy means to be unique and unlike anything else in all of creation. And so Jesus is going to be holy. He's going to be unique. His birth is going to be unique. His nature as God-man is going to be unique. The fact that the Holy Spirit is going to be involved in his life from the very beginning of his inception is going to be unique. And he's going to be unlike anything in all of creation. And so he's not going to just be the long-awaited king, but he's going to be unique as king in a way that no one has ever seen a king, the God-man. And the Holy Spirit is going to be shaping him and guiding him from the very beginning. Now, you and I, we're called to be holy, and so we can be holy, but not in the same way that God is holy. Because holiness means to be unique and unlike anything else in creation. Because everything in creation is created by God. Therefore, everything in creation is outside of and separate and unlike God because we are the product of God. And he is the only thing that existed before creation, therefore he's unique. Therefore, none of us can be holy like God is holy. Why does God then in Leviticus say, be holy because I am holy? Because the point that he's making here is that we become holy when we become connected to and a part of who God is. That we cannot be holy in ourselves, not, neither through our intelligence or behavior or our prestige and, or our faith and in any kind of way. We become holy by the fact that we connect ourselves to the one who is holy. 
And then we start becoming like Him as we're refined and, and sanctified. But then we become holy because we are used in a holy way, in a unique way. The default in all humans in the world is that we live life and pursue things and make decisions and do things in order to gain power or comfort or security or pleasure entertainment in some kind of a way. Where lives are directed in a way to fulfill our pleasures and our desires. But God created us to be in his image in order to build his kingdom and to build the kingdom of God and to make creation look like God and to be sacrificing for other people in order to build their lives into the kingdom of God so they can be a part of that. And so this is how we become unique and unlike anything else in creation is that our lives are being used for something that normal humans do not use their lives for. And so this is why God can call the knife and the tabernacle holy because all other knives are used to cut food in order to feed the people in order to keep them alive or to kill animals or to for food or to kill humans for the death penalty or in anger or selfishness. But this knife in the tabernacle is holy because this knife is going to kill an animal for the atonement of sins so that people can come into a right relationship with God. And that sense, this knife is unique and unlike any other knife in creation because it's being used to atone for people and bring the kingdom of God and expand the kingdom of God. And this is how we are to be holy. And so what God is saying is from the very beginning, Jesus is holy. He is holy in that he is unique and unlike anything in creation, and he's going to be used in a holy way, unlike any other human has ever been used to build the kingdom of God. And this, all these things will make him the son of God, that he is the same essence as God himself. The birth announcement of Jesus is emphasizing the uniqueness of Jesus compared to all other things in creation, the superiority of Jesus over all things is creation because he is the messianic king who will rule over Israel. And he is unique in the sense that he is the God-man. He is the son of God, the same essence. The angel goes on and gives her a sign. And look, your relative Elizabeth has also become pregnant with a son in her old age. Although she was called barren, she is now in the sixth month for nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary said, Yes, I am the servant of the Lord. Let this happen to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. So the angel comes to her and says, I'm going to give you a sign to prove that I am from God and what I say is from God and that this will truly happen to you. The sign is that your relative, Elizabeth, is pregnant, which is physically impossible for her to become pregnant because she's too old and too barren to become pregnant. And so when you see that and that you find out from her that I visited her previously, I, Gabriel, and the same angel, you will know that this is definitely of God and this is what is definitely going to happen to you. And so he gives her a sign to validate this. And Mary willingly submits herself to that. Now, I don't know in this moment if she's truly thinking through all the negative ramifications of what becoming pregnant outside of marriage will bring to her. But what she is focusing on and what is being dominant in her thoughts is all the positives 
and the blessings that God has chosen her and going to use her to give birth to the Messiah who redeem the world from their sins and from their oppression of enemies. And so this is what she's saying yes to, without hesitation, without complaining, without doubt. She gives herself over to this. And so once again, we have a female who is being shown up as a woman of great faith who is being used by God to build the kingdom of God in a way that the male is not. So Mary then went and visited Elizabeth in order to validate the sign that God had given her. Verse 39. In those days, Mary got up and went hurriedly into the hill country to a town of Judah and entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. Now, you need to understand, she's not making this journey by herself. Yes, it seems like she just kind of, as a 15-year-old girl, kind of made this journey all the way from Galilee in the north, Nazareth, for several hundred miles, which would take a couple of days to travel all the way down to Judah in the south. And it seems that she did this all by herself. But nobody would make this journey by themselves. This is too long of a journey. A woman, a young girl, all by herself would never make this journey by herself. It is way too dangerous. And there's way too many people who could jump you and take you and hurt you or sell you off into slavery in some kind of sense. Men wouldn't even really make this journey all by themselves. When people made this journey, they made it in groups. And so culturally speaking, you don't have to say that she went with relatives or a caravan because everybody reading this would have known that relatives or other people would have gone with her and she's not alone. And the fact that she's visiting her relative, Elizabeth, implies that other people, the family would want to go to her with her and see Elizabeth as well. And so this is a journey that she's made with other people. And when she comes in the presence of Elizabeth, it says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greetings, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And with the filling of the Holy Spirit, with the influence of the Holy Spirit, she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child in your womb. Who am I, the mother of my Lord, should come and visit me? For the instant the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that what was spoken to her by the Lord would be fulfilled. So we've already talked about this, but now what you see is Elizabeth and Mary come together and everything is focused on Mary. She is more blessed than Elizabeth is. And Elizabeth acknowledges that with her own words. And so Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, immediately responds and blesses and sings the praise of Mary, who has been chosen to give birth to one who is greater than her son, John. And not only is she responding in a praise towards God for who Mary is carrying, but John, under the Holy Spirit, has also leaped with joy in response to Jesus, showing that he recognizes that Jesus appeared to him as well. And then she goes on and says that this woman is carrying my Lord, that Jesus is her Lord. She's acknowledging that. Now, now, don't read into this and assume that she's acknowledging that Jesus is God and that she gets this at this moment. People didn't really get this until really after the resurrection of Christ, that he was the God-man. The Lord here is king. 
she's recognizing the fact that Mary is giving birth to the king, the Messiah of Israel, that's going to redeem them from their enemies. And this is what she's saying, is that he is my Lord, he is my king. And even though I will, ne- I will not be around when he becomes full grown and becomes king, I am acknowledging my bowed knee to him and my submission to him now. He is my king. And that's what she's professing. And so it shows the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. She gets the full ramifications that the king has arrived and that this boy is her king and it is John's king as well. At this point, Mary sings a hymn of praise to Yahweh for what he has done in her life. Now, most likely she didn't just spontaneously come up with this on the spot and begin to sing it to Elizabeth, but this is something she's been crafting for a few days, perhaps on the road down to Judah, and that now she's ready to share it with Elizabeth. The verbs in Mary's song underscore the grace and the power of Yahweh in his active redemptive work of humanity and creation. Her song proclaims that Jesus' conception has set the eschatological work of Yahweh into motion, yet it is happening now and the present as well. So the nature of her song is that God is going to fulfill his end-time plan of redemption and the kingdom of God on earth. Yet it's happening now for her and this present time. So it begins now, the already not yet. Now the Catholic Church has called this song the Magnificat. Robert Tanhill says this, one of the most important functions of the Magnificat is to provide an initial characterization of the God whose purpose shapes the following story. It is this song that's going to give the character traits of what God is going to be doing in the rest of the book of song. There are four major sections in Mary's hymn. These four sections are called stanzas, like a verse and a song. The first stanza is Luke chapter 1, 46 through 48. And Mary said, My life exalts the Lord. So soul is not a good translation here. Whenever you see the word soul in the Bible, it should be translated as life. Life in its fullness. Your mental life, your emotional, physical, social life, and all of your resources of life. All of my life exalts the Lord. So Deuteronomy 6.4 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your life. All of it. So all of who she is in her being exalts, praises the Lord. And my spirit has begun to rejoice in God, my Savior, because he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. For from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So she says, I'm going to rejoice in God, my Savior. This is a significant point because she acknowledges that she needs a savior. And this word savior is not just a political savior from your enemies, Rome, but also a spiritual redemption salvation. Because even though they view the Messiah as a political redeemer, they also knew that this involved the redemption of Israel from their sins. And so she acknowledges she needs the savior, which is significant because the Catholic Church teaches that Mary didn't need a savior, that in order for Jesus to be sinless, he had to be born from a sinless mother. Therefore, Mary has no sin. 
but she's acknowledging that she needs a savior. She needs to be redeemed in way her own mouth, her own words. And so this stanza focuses on her praising God for sending her savior from her sins. The second stanza is Luke chapter 1, 49 through 50. Because he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. From generation to generation, he is merciful to those who fear him. Mary praised Yahweh for being her covenantal God, who in his grace chose her to fulfill the promises. The way that Yahweh has blessed her will be remembered through the generations. So he is, she first stands as she praises God for bringing the Savior that they've awaited. And now in the second stanza, she's praising God for using her in that plan of redemption, using her in God's plans. And these things are so big that they will be remembered from generation to generation. In the third stanza, verses 51 through 53, she says this, he has demonstrated power with his arm. He has scattered those whose pride wells up from the sheer arrogance of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up those of lowly positions. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. So this she focuses on the divine warrior. The warrior has come with his mighty arm. The mighty arm is the right arm. And the kingship language, the right arm is the arm of judgment, the arm of deliverance and battle, the arm of conquering. In Isaiah chapter 63 or 64, um, we're told that God comes to bring judgment on the nations and his right arm works redemption and salvation for Israel and judges the people. And this is the imagery here is that now God, Jesus has become the right arm of God and he's executing this. He's a divine warrior. Now, this is military language for a 15 year old girl in a small town. And this is what she sings about. This is done in the way that it reverses certain social conditions. So he comes and he brings justice and works out his plan of redemption with his mighty right arm by bringing kings that are powerful and wealthy down low and by taking the hungry and filling them and lifting them up. So he's reversing the social conditions of the society. But he's not just simply destroying the powerful and making the lowly powerful. Rather, Yahweh is at work in the lives of the individuals in order to subvert the social order that supports and perpetuates these distinctions. So it's not just about God saying, oh, you're wealthy, so I'm going to bring you down. You're powerful, so I'm going to strip you of that. And you're poor, and I'm going to lift you up. But he's talking specifically and foremost by the fact that the wealthy tend to become corrupt and use it to oppress other people, though there are exceptions, and so they will be left alone. And that the poor tend to be the ones without and are oppressed and tend to recognize that they need help. They are more likely to embrace the redemption, the salvation of God, though there are exceptions to that and they are not blessed. But the real point that God is making here is the social statuses that separate us and divide us and ruin community. Remember the community that God says that John will begin to restore and heal relationships between people. Those are going to be removed. I don't know if he's necessarily saying there's going to be no more poor, no more wealthy in a socialistic kind of a sense. But the, the social conditions that create the huge rifts 
between people and cultures and make it impossible for them to become a community or get in the way of their need for God and loving God and loving others, those are going to be undone. God is going to remove those. To the wealthy who use their wealth to build the kingdom of God, there's no reason to lower them. But to the wealthy who use it to oppress other people just to gain more power, that needs to be done away with. That kind of an idea. The fourth stanza is verses 54 through 55, and it says, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. So in this stanza, she looks back to the past and says that everything that God is now doing, everything that I'm praising him or in this hymn, is rooted back in the First Testament promises to Abraham and the prophets. And, and God has not forgotten us. Though it may have been hundreds and hundreds of years and an exile and a return and a silence of the prophets from God, God has not forgotten. He has remembered us. And now he's putting all that into action. He's making it happen. And the word remember here doesn't mean that I forgot and now I remembered. But the word remember means putting into action, making it happen. And so she's rooting it back. This is God's plan A. Not a plan B, not something he's remembered or forgotten previously, but this is his original plan to make this all happen. So these four stanzas, basically she praises God for bringing their long-awaited Savior. She praises God for using her in this plan of redemption. And then she acknowledges and worships God as this divine warrior who destroys the social conditions that make life Difficult that allow sin to enter into people's lives and keep people divided and break down community, that he's going to destroy these barriers and level things out. And then finally, she remembers that this has been God's plan all along, and he's finally making this happen. So in the end, this section ends with, So Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months, and then she returned home. So Talbert says this, it is clear that Jesus is going to overturn and change the world's cultural values and structures. Yet he did not do it by going to Rome and entering politics, nor did he join zealots in revolution. He did it by going to the poor, the outcasts, the sinners, and offering them forgiveness and deliverance into a community whose life was embodied in the will of God. Only God and Jesus in the last days can achieve a just society on earth. Jesus and his disciples will change society not by being a political powerhouse, but by being an example, a creative minority, and a witness of God's character, love, and mercy. The church does not fulfill its social responsibility by directly attacking society's structures, but by simply modeling and living the social structure of the kingdom of God. The model that Jesus is putting forth in the Gospels is not of a political revolutionary or someone who goes into politics and tries to tear down and destroy political and social structures through power and protesting and revolution, but one who faithfully lives out God's character and love for other people by serving those who are downtrodden, by serving those who are in need and depressed and down and out and loving them and modeling that to people. This is how people are changed. 
You do not change a culture by overturning the government or the corporations or the powerhouses. You change it by entering into the families of people and meeting their needs and helping them find help. The First Testament has made it very clear that a society and its government and institutions are only as healthy as the family is. That the key is not treating the symptoms of a broken and fallen government and institutions and society, but by healing the family. And when the family is healed, then the family that makes up society will be healthy, and society that forms institutions and governments will become healthy. This is how Christ changed the world, by entering into the lives of people and meeting their needs and loving them and bringing change that way. This is the birth announcement of Jesus to Mary and the way that she responded. And the most significant, important part of this is the purpose that Jesus will have as being the long-awaited king. And her hymn that praises God and details out how God is going to use Jesus in the redemption of Israel by basically removing the social conditions that make it difficult or impossible to have community and health and the things that corrupt societies and divide them to begin with. This is what Jesus has come to do. So any questions? I know it's late in the night, but does anybody have any questions? Is this beneficial? Is this helpful? Good.